This is an ABC podcast. Lock the doors. We would expect to see some rather concerning numbers for a while. I will continue to stand up for these regions that I know and love. We know how important it is for the parliament to meet. Isolation, testing. Being bored is much better than being in intensive care. Hello and welcome to The Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvel as the host of RN Drive and Afternoon Briefing. And I'm Fran Kelly from RM Breakfast and PK. We're going to be joined soon here at the party by Sam Maiden. Sam is the political editor with News.com. And we're going to be talking about culture, in particular the culture in Parliament House in Canberra, which was described by Four Corners, they had a hard-hitting expose this week, described the culture in Parliament House as a sexualised, boozy atmosphere and revealed detailed accounts of misconduct and poor behaviour from two very senior cabinet ministers. Yeah, that's right. This is Alan Tudge and Christian Porter. Uh, Christian Porter, of course, is the Attorney General, so is our nation's top lawmaker. Look, that story by Louise Milligan um, included an interview with a former senior Liberal staffer, Rochelle Miller, who'd had an affair with the acting immigration minister, Alan Tudge, in 2017, while both of them were married. She felt that ultimately she had to leave her job because of the pressure associated with that affair. Here she is. The behaviour wasn't okay and the culture's not okay and there should be something done about it. Uh, She has also filed now a bullying and harassment complaint against Alan Tudge with the Department of Finance. Now, just to be very clear, uh, she hasn't made any allegations of sexual harassment. This is this is actually, I think, now a story about uh, deeper issues in relation to power and uh, power relationships in Canberra. There is the so-called, and I'm going to call it the so-called, we're going to get into this more with Sam Maiden, but bonk ban that was introduced by Malcolm Turnbull to deal with these issues after the Barnaby Joyce story first broke in relation to his relationship with his staffer. But uh, I suppose what's been revealed is that that kind of culture perhaps still exists and that there needs to be a more serious look at the way staffers are treated and their rights are looked at as well. So I think that's kind of at the heart of where we're at at the moment, a call to essentially give staff of ministers more industrial power because they don't have very much, Fran. Mm. And I think maybe we should explain to people, if you don't know what the bonk ban was, so-called bonk ban, it's that dictum that Malcolm Turnbull gave, um, made when he was Prime Minister following, as PK said, the Barnaby Joyce um, carry on, um, that ministers cannot have a sexual relationship with staff in their office. So that's the extent of it. Um, PK, the Prime Minister, doesn't want us calling it the bonk band anymore. He was quite firm about that, wasn't he? Look, he was quite firm and his firmness, I actually agree with him on the, the spirit I of what too. he's saying. Right? I do too. It does trivialise it. It's not a bonk band. Ha ha, the word bonk is, yeah. you know, something I started saying in I high agree. school, right? Um, hey, who's bonking who? But uh, really... If you if you go to the heart of it, what he's saying is right. It's it's serious. It's about abuse of power and not misusing your power in in sexual relationships. To call it a bonk ban is trivial. What yeah. he messed up though was talking over his minister <laughs> and Rushton, who was asked a question from Philip Curry, who was regular on this podcast, uh, and he interrupted, came right over the top of her in the most blatant moment of mansplaining I've seen for quite some time. It's gone viral. I think the New York Times has even written a story 
story that has an element of of him talking over her. Really bad look when a woman is asked a question. And actually, the the question was premised with particularly as a the woman. Question. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I particularly mean, particularly the question. He had he should have just waited for her to finish and then said, "I'd like to add that I think we should stop using this terminology." But yeah. he didn't. It was a bit tone deaf. Didn't read the room. Didn't read what actually this is about, which is really an expose on the pervasive nature of male power, of toxic masculinity. That's how I see it. And I think it's okay to have that conversation. Is Parliament the last bastion where this prevails? And if you change it, which I think we should, how can that kind of benefit and bring more talent into the Parliament so women can go up the ranks and feel safe at work? Yeah, and we'll keep this discussion going with Sam Maiden. I think it is important to note at the start, Alan Tudge, the minister you mentioned there, he was one of the two ministers focused on the Four Corners. He's acknowledged the affair. He's apologised for the hurt it caused. The other element of Four Corners report, as you mentioned, referred to the conduct of the Attorney-General, Christian Porter, particularly an account of his behaviour back in 2017 at a bar in Canberra. According to Four Cs, he was seen by several people behaving inappropriately with a young Liberal staffer from another minister's office. He denies this ever occurred, Um, but the rumours at the time obviously were about. In fact, Malcolm Turnbull told Four Corners he'd warned Christian Porter to cut it out, that he'd heard about it and that he'd be out of the ministry if he heard of this public behaviour with young female staff again. So it was the rumours were about, but Christian Porter denies the events ever happened and he told Perth radio station 6BR he was not ever in a relationship with the woman in question. Did you or have you ever had an intimate relationship, intimate relations with a staffer? Look, I've answered your question. The allegation that was put to me... Well, you've you've answered the question about the specific incident in that report. Yeah, but there's no other... Is there another allegation? And that's, of course, Christian Porter. Look, let's park it. I want to talk more about this with Samantha Maiden, who's been watching it very closely, and I know has some very strong views on it. And let's talk about another enormous story this week, which um, couldn't have come at a worse time, I've got to say. The pressure was all on the government. I think there's a lot of pressure on the government in relation to that that Four Corners story and the repercussions. But something really big happened this week. Shadow Agriculture Minister Joel Fitzgibbon decided to quit the Labor front bench. And the reason he decided to quit the Labor front bench is that his views on climate change were at odds with uh, the shadow cabinet's position. So what we've seen here is a very public and ugly split in the Labor Party in relation to their emissions reduction targets and how to go forward. This is all about the last election. This is, you know, really about settling that kind of idea of, you know, coal workers, whether, whether they'll vote Labor. And there were stories that also came out about, you know, basically it was almost fisticuffs, wasn't it, Fran? <laughs> that was one of the reports anyway between Joel Fitzgibbon and Anthony Albanese, the leader. Um, they didn't touch each other, as as I understand it, but, you know, it got pretty willing. And so now this has bubbled over at the worst time, I think, for Labor. And there, it seems to me another climate change split on the other side of politics, which I think all our listeners would think, no, not more climate wars. Yeah, well, we are at the climate wars again, of course, and it's because the really big thing happened this week was the uh, the calling of the US presidential election. So Joe Biden becomes president-elect in the United States, and what's his one of the first actions he's going to take is he's going to sign America back up to the Paris uh, climate targets, the Paris Agreement, and he's going to elevate climate change and a response to climate change uh, as his number one 
policy and he's going to take that forward with countries all around the world to urging them to lift their ambitions. So that immediately sort of shone a spotlight on Australia because the Australian government, of course, the Morrison government, will not commit to zero emissions, net emissions by 2050. And that is the pledge that America will take under a Joe Biden presidency, as have, I think there's something like 70 other countries at the moment. All our major trading partners are there. Australia's not there. So it should have been a week where the pressure came on the Morrison government over climate. That's what Anthony Albanese was prepared for, uh, except Joel Fitzgibbon came out and put the kibosh on that. He said this should not be interpreted, um, you know, as as a win for a, a, a party, an opposition or a, pol- a political party that was promoting more action in climate change. And that sort of completely undercut Anthony Albanese's tactics. So, you know, we should remember here, Joel Fitzgibbon has taken this step. He was always going to quit the front bench at some point because he suffered a 14% swing against him at the last election to the One Nation candidate, took that off him uh, in the seat of Hunter. It's a coal mining seat. So, you know, he's got a lot at stake here. But of course, so does the Labor Party, PK. They've lost a few elections now on this. They've got sort of this existential crisis they're trying to deal with um, in terms of their supporter base, that the, you know, the working class base of coal mining seats in New South Wales and, and parts of Queensland, how to hold on to those votes, many of whom deserted them at the last election and the inner city uh, trends too, where people are interested in a polit- supporting a party that takes more radical action on climate change. This is very, very difficult for the Labor Party to get this right. It's incredibly difficult. Look, I just want to say, I don't think clearly climate change played a part in their election loss, but let's not forget an unpopular leader in Bill Shorten. Let's not forget some pretty bold policies in relation to the economic shakeup, which was very disruptive as well. So it's a bit difficult to kind of narrow it down. And that's where sort of the progressive side of the Labor Party, that's where they come from. They say, hang on a minute, there's a lot of factors. Don't be so reductionist and reductive about it. There are ways of of promising green new jobs that can appease or or really sell the idea of a progressive party that is a job creator that deals with emissions um, rising. And and that's the view they take. I just reckon um, before we wind up on this and bring in our guests that it's important to also mention that this I reckon you cannot see this in any other way than through also the prism of pressure on Anthony Albanese as leader. I think it's a real issue now. Many people are sort of questioning whether he can win the next election for Labor. That election is quite soon. Realistically, can they change leader given it's so difficult with their 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 actual mechanism for getting there? It's pretty hard to do, but I reckon... I reckon that's an issue, Fran. I I don't think that it's just about policy. Well, it might not just be about policy. They've had a tough year because a pandemic doesn't leave much room for an opposition to score many political points. It's been tough for Anthony Albanese. There is some dissatisfaction with the way he's managed the year, that he doesn't cut through. There's some concern. But really, until there is another obvious contender in the ranks, I can't see who is going to make this move or why they would make this move because surely, surely our political parties have learnt that that is really not the road to success, haven't they? 
Well, I suppose you could say Scott Morrison did win after they dumped Malcolm yeah, Turnbull. Yeah, I don't think it's as easy as that doesn't work. It's not work. popular, though. Oh, well, don't you think? I mean, really? How many leaders can can either of these political parties Oh, look, I'm not, in, I'm not arguing for decade. a leadership change in the Labor Party. It's none of my business. But I do think that it's, it's a reasonable thing for anyone to make an assessment about whether their particular leader has what it takes to win a general election. That's yeah, a reasonable thing. Is to... it leaders or is it their policies? This is a policy column division a, they have to solve B. and work out, you know, within their own party, whoever's the leader, I think. Mm. Quickly, let's note something very significant that many of our listeners will be affected by, Fran, and that's the government revealing this week that the job seeker unemployment benefit will be extended until March. There was a bit of uncertainty about it, so now they have decided to do it, but they've cut it by 100 bucks. Um, ACOS, that's the welfare peak welfare group, is pretty unhappy. In fact, it's released some figures this week showing that after rent, 40% of people on JobSeeker are left with $14 a week to live on. Mm. Uh, Labor says the payment should have remained at that 815 amount until March. I suppose the, the debate continues too about the permanent rise. Is the government just getting us ready for it to go back to $40 a day? I don't know how they can get away with that. No, I don't think they will. Um, there's questions, you know, there's there's a number of points here. Sure, they are keeping the coronavirus supplement in place, but at such a low level, an extra $50 a week, as you say, that's $357 a week to live on, which is not much. So there's issues about poverty. People would, are living on that amount, will be living well below the poverty line here in this country. So we have questions about there as a, a nation, about the adequacy, but also questions about the economic strategy, because if you cut this payment back when the economy is struggling, you're basically taking all that money out of people's pockets and out of the economy because we all know that people on welfare payments spend every dollar they get. So it's stimulus. It's stimulus that goes straight into the hands of grocery shops and other shops and landlords. It all gets spent. And unemployment's due to hit uh, 8% by Christmas. Is it a good time to be taking money out of people's pockets? I think there's a question about that. There's a huge question about that. And we'll keep talking about it. That's what we do on the party room. But should we let our guest in? Let's do it. Let's bring in our guest this week. Sam Maiden is political editor for news.com.au. Sam, welcome. Thank you for having me. Hey, Sam. Sam, what did you make of Monday night's Four Corners program? Was it news to you is my first question. And obviously these are really serious allegations. Do you think they're being taken seriously? Well, Rochelle Miller's testimony was definitely news to me because I think there was rumours around at the time and indeed I actually spoke to her at the time and uh, it wasn't, it's not my recollection that it was really a story that I chased. It, it came up in the context of Malcolm Turnbull basically announced uh, what has been called the bonk ban, I think in early of 2018. And then these rumours went around that there had possibly been a relationship involving Alan Tudge that Ms Miller had gone to Michaela Cash's office and somehow this was all related. So she spoke to me about it at the time. She was very distressed. She absolutely denied that she was in a relationship with Mr Tudge and she was very upset about the rumours. And the other reason why the rumours surfaced is there was this um, surprising exchange with Michaela Cash in Parliament where she basically accused something of going on in, in Labor ranks. People thought it was a really weird thing for her to say. And when I mm. dug into it, what seemed to be going on was that she was very protective of Ms Miller and that Ms Miller had been the subject of all these rumours and that seemed to be the sort of trigger. So there was definitely something bubbling under the surface. So, you know, look, sometimes I think people say, why doesn't the press gallery report on these things? Now, 
until really Malcolm Turnbull brought in this rule, there probably wasn't really a reason to. I think in a lot of ways, once you codified that, which the Prime Minister of the time did, and that remains in place, suddenly um, some of these questions do become live, right, because it's a potential breach of the ministerial standards. So that was the context of the discussion that I had with Ms Miller. But of course, at the time, Ms Miller was denying the affair and she's now uh, given evidence when she spoke to Louise Milligan in Four Corners that she was under incredible pressure and felt that she was being asked to war game her denials on this. So, you know, what I saw on the screen was a, a woman who uh, whose career, I think, and really her um, sense of well-being have really been destroyed by this entire experience. Now, yeah. in terms of whether this is being taken seriously, look... I don't 100% feel that it has been because the Prime Minister has been quite dismissive of the idea that, you know, he sort of said, well, that was all dealt with at the time. Well, that's clearly not the case. I mean, if she's just put in a complaint, you know, last week. Yeah, that's right. This whole it was dealt with at the time. And the other point of it is it predates the so-called bonk ban, uh, you know, that, that these two relationships, just to be clear, Christian Porter denies that he's had one, but Alan Tudge doesn't, that they predate those new rules. But I suppose the question becomes one of power imbalances and the way that staffers are treated or can be moved on, how it seems that the women always lose their careers or or lives and, and the men, you know, keep getting promoted. Like, that's the optics here. That's how people feel about it. But there does... When you speak to some of the coalition ministers and MPs, Fran um, and, and Sam, what happens is that they tell you, well, they've told me, oh, they feel like they're being targeted because they're they're white conservative men. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's what I've been told, <laughs> that they're white conservative men, so they're getting targeted uh, in a particular way. This is just consensual relationships that uh, Rochelle Miller was in a consensual relationship. You know, she's an adult. She could have made good decisions too. That's what I've heard. Um, that is the view, Sam, so that this was inappropriate because it exposed just consensual relationships. Why is that narrative wrong? Now, Sam, I know we've asked you here to tell so what you think, but I just have to jump in there quickly because that is part of the story, right? Though, if if they are targeted because they're white conservative men who whose platform includes sort of family values and they're found to be having affairs, that also goes to hypocrisy uh, on a grand scale, doesn't it? So that also becomes part of the story. Sam, sorry, over to you. That's right. Well, there's a big old bag of kittens to unpack there. Um, look, first of all, in relation to the claims that. Um, some conservative MPs think they're being targeted because they're white men and conservatives. Um, I think I can probably guess who Patricia's been talking to because I had a similar conversation with someone last night. But, um, yeah, look, some some of them do think that um, and some of them do think that these relationships are consensual. But I think we certainly need to back up the truck a bit here because, you know, what what here do we have in terms of the complaint of Rochelle Miller? Um, she doesn't suggest for a second that this relationship wasn't consensual. And in no. fact, in her official complaint, she makes it really clear that she's not accusing Alan Tudge of sexual harassment on any, on any level. What she is saying is that she felt bullied and intimidated and run out of town uh, very quickly after this affair happened, that essentially these women um, may well enter quite consensually into these relationships but find that they're quite disposable afterwards. So the sequence of events, according to her uh, complaint, is that essentially she increasingly felt bullied and sort of confused because she's in this relationship with this man, she's working with him, he's also sort of talking to her in a way she finds quite stressful, she doesn't really understand or she's, I suppose, a bit upset with herself that she's 
found herself in this situation. So then she tries to get out of the office in late 2017, just takes the first next job going and finds herself ricocheted into Michaela Cash's office. Now, she's obviously going under a period of stress. She did actually tell uh, Michaela Cash that, you know, confidentially this was what had gone on, this was the situation. But within six months of being in that office, she's bounced out. Oh, she's mm. bounced out really fast, really, not a long time, six months. Um, there's, you know, there does sound like there's complaints raised about her performance and suggestions made that her personal life is a problem. Her personal life seems to involve occasionally having child-rearing responsibilities. Like, I mean, there's some incident where uh, she has to go look after a daughter that mm. is, seems Outrageous. to be some sort of massive problem. And then basically she's told six months later that there's a redundancy uh, process and she's out the door. So, you know, she's put under all this pressure and stress and then she sort of bounced out of there. And then she tries to reapply to these jobs that you know, she would appear to be qualified for. She's been sort of doing similar jobs. Well, I think that's worth years. saying. She's very, she was very senior, uh, experienced press sec, wasn't she? Well, there's, there's, you know, a bit of information in the uh, complaint that she's made about, you know, what level she was and when she was paid as a senior and whatever. But look, my honest impression of having dealt with her is I thought she was very good press sec um, and I didn't ever have any issues with her of any kind. So, you know, she may have been stressed at certain points, but essentially she wasn't given any support. The other thing that is really fascinating uh, in her complaint, which I'll be writing about today, is she sort of talks a little bit about the, the whole robo-debt fallout and what was going on in the office at the time, which is sort of interesting for other reasons. But, I mean, look, the bottom line is uh, she's made a complaint. That's what makes it a story, right? Now, conservative men can say they feel like they're being cons- targeted because they're conservative men. Well, they appear to be, in this case, targeted by their ex-lover, mm. right? <laughs> yeah. And, that's right. Um, <laughs> And and that seems to be what's going on here. Why is it a story? Well, she's put in an official complaint to the Department of Finance and she's gone on national television to talk about her experiences. So maybe what we need to look at here, given human emotions are what they are, relationships will occur, human frailty I think is a term that's been thrown around a bit this week, we need to look at what needs to change or what needs to be put in place to, uh, in the case of sort of power differentials, protect the individuals involved. Because under the rules of the Parliament, staff can be sacked by their ministers. That rule is not going to change. But are there other ways to give well, women most often uh, more protection? We know Labor has put in place, I think Tanya Plibersek has led a, a process within the Labor Party to set up a channel uh, within Labor for women to bring forward complaints if there's concerns about sexual harassment or bullying, that kind of thing. But is there a formal mechanism in place or does there need to be something better put in place to give staff protections in these kinds of situations? Look, it's really tricky. I'm actually completely open to the idea that the bonk ban or whatever you want to call it isn't the best way to go about it, Uh, that basically you may want to strengthen the provisions around sexual harassment and bullying, for example, that, you know, there's some way of kind of dealing with it in that way. You know, there is a legitimate, I think, discussion, debate about whether, you know, the rules that they've put in place are necessarily the right one. I'm not advocating for ministers to have sexual relationships with their staff, but clearly it does immediately open the door to almost force the media to sort of report on these Mm -hmm. personal relationships that might be consensual. Um, But, you know, it is a tricky area because politicians want to essentially 
retain the right to hire and fire on the basis of whether they have confidence in these people that, you know, they're doing very sort of personal and confidential work. So, you know, there is an argument that A, under the MOPS Act, as you said, they don't have a lot of power, the staffers, and B, my understanding is that the Department of Finance can't necessarily take any clear action against an MP accused Mm. of bullying because the Department of Finance is not the employer of the politician, if that makes sense. Yeah, right. So there is a complaints process, mm -hmm. but the people, the department in charge of it actually can't really take much action. That is my general understanding, yeah. Yeah. And the other problem with all of it is, you know, there's no prohibition on um, ministers having sex with staffers in other offices. Yes. So it's very easy just to move these people around. Yep. And, and you know, if, if that was the case, if there was a mythical senior minister that was sort of picking off younger women in all offices all around town, well, I probably think that would be a problem in the workplace. Mm-hmm. But under <laughs> well, these rules... I think rules, it would be too. But under these w- rules, it's not. So, so I think that these things are really not easy to manage and they're not necessarily as open and shut as you think. Yeah, Yeah. I think that's right. Look, the other thing that happened this week, of course, is that Anthony Albanese, after the PM very politically cleverly switched to pressure on Labor and the Greens on relationships between ministers and staff, announced that he would essentially have the same policy uh, that, you know, minister, shadow ministers wouldn't have relationships with their staff either. Look, just briefly, on Tuesday I spoke to the former federal Labor minister, Kate Ellis. Uh, She's left politics. She's writing a book about the experiences of women in parliament. Here's the point that she made. There's a lot of focus on the treatment of our female MPs and that's been publicly debated. But the issue is that if you're a staff member, um, none of those male MPs are hoping to get your vote for the leadership or for their promotion or to join the ministry. Um, So there is a much greater power imbalance. Um, And I thought she kind of nailed it there. (laughs) They don't need to hustle for your vote. You know, you're basically the lowest, the lowest on the sort of hierarchy chain uh, essentially, Sam, and that's part of the issue. The Do you think that the Prime Minister ultimately will be forced to do some more widespread change on this? That's the big question, right? I mean, so far he said, yep, we've got the ban that Malcolm Turnbull introduced. He hasn't been as critical of the Four Corners as, as some others, um, which I thought was really interesting. Is this going to force change? I don't know. I mean, my sense, and, you know, some of this is based on my sense rather than exactly what's come out of his mouth, is I don't think he thinks that what Alan Tudge got up to is defensible. I don't think he defends it. Um, I think that he genuinely does support a ban on, uh, M- you know, ministers having sex with stuff. He doesn't think that's appropriate. And he was a bit out of his lonesome supporting Malcolm Turnbull about that. I think he does want good workplaces, um, but, you know, political offices are pretty robust places. I wouldn't be surprised if there's a few people that have been told, you know, in fairly forceful terms by the Prime Minister to do things over the years. I don't think it'd be a a Robinson Crusoe there. Uh, So I'm a bit dubious of whether a lot of things will change. I think it's very brave of Rochelle Miller to... um, go public in this way because she has to basically own her own mistakes, which I think she's really done. But, I mean, she's not a lily white character. Like, she confesses herself to an extramarital affair. There's a lot of people that will judge her for that. But I think that it's really important and brave that she's talking about it. And I think people that want to say, oh, it's just a consensual relationship, this is not a story, are completely missing the point. Yeah. Because 
what this is about is about her experience in the workplace and her losing her career and being bundled out the door. Now, you can say that was because, you know, she wasn't, uh, according to her critics, performing that well, but, gee, she sounds like she was under a lot of pressure mm. and maybe that should have been taken into consideration. Yep, absolutely. Hey, Sam, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your insights. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, Sam. See ya. The bells are ringing. That means it's time for question time. And PK, this week's question comes from James in Melbourne. He says, hi, Fran and PK. Thanks for your podcast. I love them. That's great, James. Thank you. He says, I have a multi-pronged question for you in the wake of Monday's Four Corners report. Clearly, a lot goes on behind the scenes in federal parliament that the public don't see or hear about, but the Canberra Press Gallery does from off-the-record conversations and social settings. How much and how long beforehand do you know about stories like Monday's Four Corners? Do you have a sense when you become aware of them that they are ticking time bombs? Does this kind of story feed into the perception that journalists and politicians are too close and protect each other's interests? Thanks for considering my question, James. Okay. So the Canberra Press Gallery, right? Both Fran and I have worked in it for long periods of time. We don't at the moment. We're in the big states. I'm in Melbourne. Fran's in Sydney. But we go to Canberra quite a bit. Well, I was allowed to once. Um, I will be again now, uh, now that Melbourne's um, allowed to go everywhere, sort of, nearly. Uh, look, there is, a, there is a close relationship that you build with politicians and uh, ministers and shadow ministers to find out information, to build stories. Uh, but the idea that they're inappropriate... All journalists deal with them separately and differently, but I don't think they have to be inappropriate. And, and yes, our ideas about what's in the public interest shift. I think that's healthy. I think, we, we think we're thinking more critically about these issues. And I'll mm. say this, right? When I first went to Canberra in the early 2000s as a, very, yeah, as a young woman, um, I was told that these sorts of relationships that I might see, uh, th that's not in the public interest. People's sex life is not in the public interest. And I believed it, right? And I believed it for good reasons, that uh, people having relationships shouldn't be in the public interest. I think we are now changing our views based on understanding power and the power imbalance between employers and workers, men and women still, and that my own ideas, even though I thought I was a young feminist, but they've changed quite a bit. So I think some of the things I may have witnessed in the early 2000s, not interesting to anyone now, but just vaguely witnessed, like seen at the pub, um, I probably would think about differently now. I think that's okay. I think it's a bit of a kind of reveal for me because we've sh we've, things shift as you go, oh, right. So that's oh that is a yarn oh that 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 is in the public interest oh right that that does that does actually breach a line and sometimes some of the old ideas we have perhaps and I'm going to say something controversial Fran because that's the nature of who I am perhaps they they did fit into a very male editorial line of reporting that's, well, I'm just I saying think, it because I think that's yeah. what happened. I think you're right. And I arrived even before you and that was even probably more pronounced. You know, what goes on um, stays in the house. These are private relationships. These are consenting adults and by and large they are consenting adults. But it took the whole issue, I think you're exactly right, of power, of power dynamic out of that. I've thought much more deeply about it. I think the world has, corporate Australia has come a long way. I think in Parliament House, uh, it is, as revealed on Four Corners, as we've just been discussing this morning, it hasn't come so far. So yes, a public interest test needs to be 
a sign. Not every personal relationship will be appropriate to talk about, to report on, but public interest test has to be um, has to be run across it, and power is at the basis of this. I think. Yeah, that's right. I just want to clarify. Uh, because I've seen this on Twitter and um, people say, ignore Twitter, but, you know, I do engage with people. That's one of my ways. It's my thing, whatever. Uh, people saying, you knew about Barnaby Joyce and refused to reveal it. No, I didn't. I heard rumours, but I had absolutely um, no evidence or, or any information to be able to publish that story. Sherry yeah, Markson did, and she wrote it. Yeah. And, and she's won I a Walkley for I hadn't even heard the rumours. Yeah. I, hadn't even I had heard rumours that maybe something was going on, but like real gutter rumour stuff. Like no, no eyewitness, no, nothing of substance. Do you know what I mean? So I just want to make that clear because I've been accused of being in a protection racket. I haven't. I don't, you know, I'm, I'm people, I don't know, maybe... Uh, too into my kids. People don't tell me these things very much. People mustn't think I'm that interested in this stuff. Um, so I just want to make that clear because I, I really find that a little offensive, the idea that a good journalist would go, oh, I'm going to cover this up. I don't work in the world of cover-up. And I think when there are, you know, genuine uh, stories to be told, they should be told. And it's pretty brave, the women who go on the record to tell them to. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, James, for your question. It was a good one. And that's it for the party room. We'll be back next week. That's what we do. Um, but while you're waiting, right, while you're waiting for our next episode, which I know you're just waiting for now, uh, we wanted to give you a heads up on an RN podcast we're pretty excited about. We think it's a really, really good podcast. It's called This Working Life. It's hosted by Lisa Leong and it's about work, a bit about life, but mostly work. Yeah, and there's a ton of expert help there, which lets you in on sort of the latest ideas, experiments and fast fails that will kick your work life into gear. It's kind of like a digital water cooler of work life, but without annoying colleagues. Not that any of my colleagues are annoying. And you can find This Working Life wherever you normally get your podcasts. That's it from us. We'll be back next week. Till then, PK. See ya. See you, friends. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.